0: Greetings. My name is Hurst Hannum. I'm a professor of international law at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University in the United States. And I'll be talking to you today about the international law of self-determination. Perhaps no contemporary norm of international law has been so vigorously promoted or widely accepted, uh, if only rhetorically, as the right of peoples to self-determination. Yet the meaning, the content of this principle, is probably as vague today as it was when it was first articulated in the 19th century or by diplomats in the early 20th century at the time of the League of Nations. Self-determination is both a political principle and a norm of international law. It's closely related to concepts of democracy, sovereignty, territorial integrity, It has both internal and external aspects, and I will address both of these during the talk today. Its exercise includes elements of self-government, representative democratic institutions, and freedom from outside influence or pressure. Self-determination has evolved considerably during the past century. And it's important, I think, to understand the historical context in which what today is a right of self-determination has developed. It's a relatively recent term uh, and I think you can divide self-determination into three phases. The first we could refer to as the age of nationalism uh, from the late 17th or late 18th centuries to perhaps the time of the First World War. The second phase, and perhaps the most important for our purposes, is the age of decolonization, post nineteen. Forty-five, when the United Nations began to refine the concept of self-determination from what it had meant in the earlier century. And the third phase is the one we are in now, uh, what is essentially a post-colonial phase, where many people now ask what relevance self-determination still has today. I will go relatively briefly through the first phase and spend a little more time on the second two, before finally turning to the question of what the content of the international law of self-determination is today. Nationalism is an incredibly complex historical phenomenon and I won't even attempt to describe it to you now. Many political scientists, historians, anthropologists, lawyers, and others uh, have come up with various theories about how and why nationalism has developed Um, what the different kinds of nationalisms might be, um, and how one might classify them. I think it's safe to say, however, that an easy definition of nationalism would base itself on two essential principles. The first principle is the notion that government should be based on the consent of the people. This seems rather straightforward today. It wasn't nearly as straightforward in the 18th and 19th centuries. The second is that the people on whom this government should be based are collected into what we call a nation. And a nation, while again it has many definitions, could be best understood as a territorially concentrated population, bound together by various characteristics. Characteristics such as language, or ethnicity, or religion, or a shared history, or culture. Putting these two propositions together, the conclusion is that every nation deserves a state. That the state, the source of political power, should be congruent with the existence of this sociological and political entity that we call a nation. Both in its origins and even today, nationalism is a political principle. It was not and is not a norm of international law. Um, and its implementation was also dependent, Was often dependent primarily on support from others, as opposed to the mere declaration that you were a nation and would like a state. In the earlier days, uh, let's say the 19th century, nationalism was essentially a unifying force and the two most common examples that are given are the unification of Germany and Italy in the mid 19th century. Uh, Of course unifying a nation has to include a certain element of myth and invention and at the time of the unification of Italy for instance in the 1860s fewer than five percent of the people of Italy were said to have actually spoken what might be called Italian. Um, Be that as it may it was an extremely attractive um, the principle to many would-be leaders uh, in Europe in the, 20th, in the 19th century. It shifted in the late 19th century and early 20th century from a unifying principle to a more destructive principle. A principle that in many cases was manipulated by outsiders as a way of undermining what were then the two great powers in Europe, uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Nationalism is also closely related to the concept of a state. And just as the state was an invention of Europe in the mid-17th century, so too nationalism is primarily a European phenomenon. Uh, As we move from nationalism to a broader understanding of self-determination, the European influence obviously diminishes considerably in the post-1945 period. At the end of World War I in 1919 and at the time of the Versailles Peace Conference and the founding of the League of Nations, nationalism as a phrase had given way in part to the phrase self-determination. Self-determination is most associated at this period with U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, who made it one of the fundamental principles on which he thought the peace treaties to end the First World War should be based. I won't read them all to you, but of his four basic principles set out in a speech in 1918 to the US Congress, he mentioned that peoples and provinces should not be bartered about from sovereignty to sovereignty as though they were chattels. Another one of his principles was that every territorial settlement at the end of the war should be made in the interest and for the benefit of the populations concerned and his final principle, uh, which is the one closest to our understanding of self-determination today, is that all well-defined national aspirations shall be accorded the utmost satisfaction that can be accorded them without introducing new or perpetuating old elements of discord and antagonism that would be likely in time to break the peace of Europe and consequently of the, of the world. And as this linkage of satisfying nationalist demands subordinating them to the peace of the world uh, that was fundamental to Wilson's understanding. He even proposed that the League of Nations Covenant, its governing charter, include a reference to self-determination, but the other great powers weren't having any of it and there is in fact no reference to self-determination or nationalism uh, in the covenant of the League. The League did eventually developed, or did at the same time, develop the concept of mandated territories, which constituted the shift from the former practice of states of simply seizing the territories from defeated powers. At this stage, both the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires had ceased to exist. And instead, these new territories were put under the tutelage of other great powers. This had nothing to do with self-determination, nothing to do with nationalism, and independence was envisaged for these territories only for a very small number of former Ottoman territories in the Middle East. Self-determination was still a political principle and it was one that was applied not globally It was not accepted by many people at the time but applied only to either new states or the defeated states after the First World War. This point was made clear in a little known case, although it's famous in international law dealing with the Oland Islands, a group of Swedish-speaking islands that wish to separate themselves from the newly independent state of Finland. The League of Nations appointed a couple of international commissions of jurists to address this question and one of them expressed what I think is an accurate uh, depiction of the status of self-determination at the time. This international committee of jurists said that while self-determination plays an important part in modern political thought, and even its inclusion in a number of treaties, quote, cannot be considered sufficient to put it upon the same footing as a positive rule of the law of nations. Positive international law does not recognize the right of national groups as such to separate themselves from the state of which they form part. I think that was an accurate statement in 1920. Uh, And as we'll see, I suspect that it is an accurate statement as of 2020 as well. The interwar period um, did not offer a positive example of either minority rights or self-determination as irredentism became one of the excuses for the Second World War. Um, Nonetheless, self-determination as a term, while it didn't make it into the League of Nations Covenant, did make it into the United Nations Charter. There are two references to self-determination in exactly the same language. One in the first article that identifies the purposes of the United Nations and the other in Article 55. But the references are very vague and refer simply to the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples, without any further explanation of what this principle should mean. Very quickly, however, this shifted. Uh, And before the moral and political imperative of decolonization, what was a vague principle of self-determination soon gave way, in a very short period, essentially during the decade of the 1960s, to a not only a bright and positive international law, but a norm of customary international law. The key document which illustrates what self-determination came to mean um, in terms of the United Nations was a resolution adopted by the General Assembly Resolution 1514 in 1960 that was entitled The Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples. Now, of course, we all know that United Nations resolutions or declarations do not themselves create law. They are essentially political statements by the highest body of the United Nations, but they are not law. The reason that I'm going to address this particular declaration in some detail is that within a decade, its provisions had essentially become accepted as customary law by all of the state members of the United Nations. Uh, and self-determination had become accepted as law as well. The Declaration starts off by saying that the subjection of peoples to alien subjection, domination, and exploitation constitutes a denial of fundamental human rights, is contrary to the Charter of the United Nations, and is an impediment to the promotion of world peace and cooperation. The second paragraph is the one that has become the expression of the norm of self-determination in international law. It says quite simply, all peoples have the right of self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. That paragraph made its way into positive international law when the General Assembly directed that it be included as the first article of the two covenants on human rights adopted by the United Nations in 1966, the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Paragraph 4 of the Declaration refers to respect for the national territory of dependent peoples, but in some ways, along with the proclamation of a right of self-determination, the other significant part of this very short declaration is Paragraph 6, which says, Any attempt aimed at the partial or total disruption of the national unity and the territorial integrity of a country is incompatible with the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations. This leads us to some questions, because if all peoples have the right of self-determination, yet they're not allowed to interfere with the political unity or national territorial integrity of a country, what really does this right mean? Uh, does the peoples that are referred to mean any dependent or non-self-governing people within any state? Which, many argued at the time, would simply encourage secession by regions and other non-self-governing territories within existing states. Were there, did, did the peoples include dependent peoples within colonial territories? who should have the right to determine, at the time of independence, whether or not they would remain part of the new state that was created out of a former colony. Or did this reference to peoples essentially mean populations? In other words, that the entire population of a colonial territory enjoys the right to independence from its colonial master, but that that right would not extend to any subregion or subgroup of the colonial territory. The response from the contemporary and subsequent practice of the UN in the 1960s and 1970s is abundantly clear, and it is the third option. That self-determination was territorial and applied to colonial territories, it was not the same as the national self-determination based on ethnicity, culture, or nationhood that was proclaimed during the 19th century. Um, Only three days after the adoption of the Declaration on Independence for Colonial People, the General Assembly adopted another uh, resolution which attempted to explain what a non-self-governing territory was, which was important because of the reference to non-self-governing territories in the UN Charter. This resolution, number 1541, said that these territories were intended to include territories which were known at the time of the adoption of the charter to be of the colonial type. And they went on to suggest a prima facie definition that a non-self-governing territory is any territory which is geographically separate and is distinct ethnically and or culturally from the country administering it, therefore excluding overseas colonies, but also excluding regions contiguous regions within states that might otherwise consider themselves to be within the scope of the self-determination of peoples. If you look at what the international community was actually doing with respect to three major attempts at secession during the 1960s this position is underscored even further. In the cases of Katanga, which attempted to secede from what was then the Congo in 1960, Biafra, which attempted to secede from Nigeria in 1967, and Bangladesh, to date the only successful secession from any independent country in 1971, none of these attempted secessions was supported by any more than the smallest handful, fewer than a half dozen countries. The United Nations ended up supporting the central government in the Congo against the Katangese secession. The United Nations paid no attention whatsoever to the three-year-long conflict in Biafra, which resulted in roughly three million deaths. Although Bangladesh became de facto independent very quickly due to the war between India and Pakistan, it only was fully accepted by the international community and only became a member of the United Nations three years later after the government, in what was left of Pakistan, uh, agreed to recognize its independence. In 1964, one of the first acts of the Organization of African Unity was to adopt a resolution that declared that all of its member states would respect the frontiers that existed on the day that they attained independence. Again, rejecting the notion that groups within a colony would have any right to self-determination. This is hardly surprising given the extreme heterogeneity of both former colonies in Asia, in Africa, and elsewhere. All of this was essentially codified in 1970 by one more UN declaration, um, uh, resolution number 2625, which has the extraordinarily long title of the Declaration on Principles of International Law concerning friendly relations and cooperation among states in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. This particular declaration is important because it was two and a half years in its drafting. And while again, it did not in itself create law, the intention of the drafters was to essentially restate customary international law at the time in 1970. The Declaration deals with a whole host of issues, uh, including non-interference, the non-use of force, uh, and many others. Uh, but it also included the section on self-determination, which essentially confirmed all of the language that I've just read to you from the 1960 Declaration. What this meant was that in the short space of a decade what had begun and had been expressed for decades earlier in the 19th and early 20th century as a political principle of national self-determination based on ethnicity, culture, and history had been transformed into a norm of customary international law that meant territorial decolonization. So you had the shift from a political argument to a norm of law, and the shift from essentially a cultural historical argument to one that had to do solely with decolonization. Colonization essentially came to an end in the mid-1970s, although there obviously are still a few disputed territories out there today. And so, the question is, if the UN definition of self-determination accepted by states around the world and from every region of the world, applied in reality only as a way of justifying decolonization. What possible meaning can it still have uh, in the post-decolonization era? Territorial self-determination, or demands for self-determination since the 1970s, have come in one of two forms. They either have been demands for secession or separation of some regions of a state from an existing state, or in some cases the demand has not been for secession, but rather simply for a greater degree of self-government within a state. Now, international law has never taken a position on the legality of civil wars or the legality of secession. Uh, It doesn't permit, it. Doesn't forbid secession, nor does it say that secession is authorized. This is something left up to the domestic uh, politics and situation, although there are, of course, international law norms that apply to the conduct of hostilities, the role that outsiders complain, etc., etc. Despite this fact, almost every situation that one can think of where secession has been attempted in the post decolonization era. Those who want to secede have asserted that they have a right to independence based on the right of self-determination and that language that says all peoples have a right to self-determination. They base that claim on their own existence as a nation, uh, their historical and cultural identity, and they also tend to argue that they too have suffered from alien subjugation or domination and that therefore their claims should be thought of in the same way that the claims of colonial peoples were thought of vis-a-vis their colonial administrators. There are a few problems with this approach. This first problem is of course that it ignores the very clear declaration that has been made many times by the United Nations, um, defending the territorial integrity and political unity of states. The second problem is that through magical sleight of hand, um, coined sometimes by what some commentators have termed termed ethnic entrepreneurs in seceding states, um, the attempt has been to to turn this political principle of ethnic or national independence, combine it with a territorial and non-national definition of independence for colonies and create a new right that would be a right for any culturally identifiable nation or people to independence even from a sovereign state. Once again, as a matter of law, the consistent reaction, with very, very few exceptions, to these attempts at secession uh, has been a rejection of both any support, support for secessionists or a rejection of any recognition of the secessionist entities that might have achieved a degree of de facto independence or de facto self-government. Um, there's a very long list of such places. Nagorno-Karabakh, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Transnistra, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, Somaliland, Crimea, and many other places um, where a conflict has occurred, not prohibited by international law, where claims were made that there was a right to independence and where those claims were emphatically rejected by the international community. Uh, This has also been accepted indirectly, for instance, uh, by the Canadian Supreme Court in a well-known decision from the 2000s dealing with whether or not Quebec had the right to become independent from Canada under international and constitutional law. A similar conclusion was reached in 1996 by the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, uh, rejecting the notion that Katanga had any right to become independent from the country then known as Zaire. Now there, of course, are exceptions uh, where the division of an existing state is consensual, as in the division of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, Czechoslovakia, and even Sudan. when South Sudan became independent. The international community is happy to recognize those consensual divisions. There also seems to be an exception for at least one state, the former Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia, uh, because it had dissolved and therefore new countries were recognized in the borders of the former Yugoslavia. These new states were not characterized as having seceded from Yugoslavia, but rather having sprung from the ashes of a state that had ceased to exist. The only exception to this very conservative approach to external self-determination, a possible right to independence, in recent years is the case of Kosovo. And I would like to spend just a couple of minutes uh, talking about that case. Uh, Kosovo declared its independence from Serbia in 2008 And since that time, over 100 states have recognized its independence. Those non-recognizers include a number of extremely important states. Uh, Most of Latin American, African, and Asian states have not recognized Kosovo's independence. And countries as significant as Brazil, China, Russia, India, Greece, and Spain have also declined to recognize Kosovo's independence. There's no need in this lecture to enter into the question of whether or not Kosovo is a state, uh, but it has not been recognized as independent either by Serbia and obviously not by the United Nations. When Kosovars declared their independence in 2008, they somewhat unusually did not claim that they had a right to independence. They made some reference in their declaration of independence to the failure of negotiations with the central government in Serbia, to the history of conflict, uh, between Kosovar Albanians and Serbs, but they ended up simply saying, and I quote, that Kosovo is a special case and not a precedent for any other situation. This is very convenient because it would be inconvenient if Kosovo were seen as a precedent, given that it owes its existence, at least in part, to what most would consider to be an illegal force use of force by NATO countries in 1999, um, and that it would stand as a precedent for recognized independence without the consent of the state from which independence has been been sought. In 2010, the International Court of Justice issued an advisory opinion, uh, which had been requested by the General Assembly, um, on the Declaration of Independence by Kosovo. Many observers hoped that this would explain what self-determination might mean. But unfortunately, both the question posed by the General Assembly and the answer given by the court were extremely narrow. The question was, is the unilateral declaration of independence by the provisional institutions of self-government of Kosovo in accordance with international law? The International Court of Justice, in its wisdom, said The adoption of the Declaration of Independence of 17 February 2008 did not violate general international law and said almost nothing else. It did specifically note, quote, the radically different views that were expressed to it, expressed to the court, on the question of whether either a contemporary form of self-determination or a right of remedial secession exists that might grant part of an existing state a right to separate from that state. But, it said, rightly in my view, that it was not necessary to answer that very difficult question given the question had been posed, the question that had been posed by the General Assembly. So we just don't know whether or not there is a right to independence or remedial secession, uh, at least as for the International Court of Justice. I would like to spend a couple of times a couple of minutes on this notion of remedial secession, however, because a number of the 36 states that submitted briefs to the court when it was considering its advisory opinion uh, did support the notion that secession perhaps could be considered as a norm of international law under certain circumstances, based on the notion that a state could forfeit its right to territorial integrity if its governance was so horrendous if it failed completely in exercising its obligations towards those within its own jurisdiction, that it could be analogized to what used to be called the carence de souveraineté, which simply mean that a misgovernment so bad that it was no longer necessary to recognize the sovereignty of the state over the misgoverned territory. This is, as one can imagine, a rather dangerous doctrine, Uh, but as I say, it was put forward by a number of states in the ICJ opinion. It's also based in part on one phrase that I haven't yet referred to from the Declaration on Friendly Relations, adopted in 1970, that as part of the paragraph that said that nothing in the foregoing declaration would authorize the dismemberment or impairment totally or in part the territorial integrity or political unity of a country. It went on to add an extra phrase that you couldn't impair territorial integrity if the country was conducting itself in compliance with the the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. A rather circular way of reasoning, but this occasionally happens in General Assembly resolutions, and thus possessed of a government representing the whole company, people belonging to the territory without distinction as to race, creed, or color. Uh, Many have suggested that this was in fact intended as a reference to the system of apartheid then in existence in South Africa so as not to suggest that the Bantustans that have been created by South Africa and proclaimed to be independent were in fact independent or that they did not continue to enjoy the right of self-determination. Of course there are many serious problems in trying to identify the real conditions that would be necessary to give rise not to just a demand or a wish but to a legal right to secession. Would it be sufficient if there were widespread international crimes or violations of international humanitarian law in the course of a conflict? Is it necessary that in addition to this perhaps, there also be discriminatory treatment or perhaps exclusion of a particular territory or region within a country to give rise to a right to secede? Is it necessary that the seceding territory be a nation in the traditional sense of that term? Is remedial secession appropriate if all the seceding entity wanted initially was a degree of self-government that the central government irresponsibly and unreasonably refused to give it? Unfortunately, there's also a final problem which is the reliance on the Declaration on Friendly Relations because this reference to a government that represents the whole people without distinction, designed, as I said, to reflect the situation in apartheid-era South Africa, is problematic since it is pre- precisely different treatment that is demanded by communities that are ethnically, geographically, or other distinct, otherwise distinct from the dominant community. And therefore, very few of the Sessionist movements that I've mentioned earlier um, would would accept mere equal inclusion in the existing state. There appears to me to be merit uh, in suggesting that gross misconduct by a state or a complete failure to be able to exercise the powers of government, what we might today call uh, failed states might, under certain narrow circumstances, lead to a right of what could be called remedial secession. But those are the the thoughts of a scholar, not of a politician, and certainly not of a government. And today there is certainly no consensus, and I believe not even any majority view, that there is any international legal right to secession. And I suspect that the majority of states would believe that no such right should in fact be recognized. Now I've been focusing primarily thus far on the right to independence, uh, what would be called external uh, self-determination. But going back to Woodrow Wilson, self-determination also had another aspect usually referred to as internal self-determination. This included first um, the freedom of an existing state uh, to be free from undue outside influence so that it could govern itself internally without interference. But secondly, it also had an aspect that I suppose could be called a democratic aspect, although that too is a very loose term, but it assumed that there was, or should be, a political system within the country that was sufficiently accountable and sufficiently representative so that one could say that the governed actually were in control of the government. This would be true and effective internal self-determination. Today this concept of internal self-determination and certainly the idea of representativeness or accountability of government has largely been overtaken by international human rights law which includes not only um, a right to free and fair periodic elections for instance but rights to many related aspects of political life that are essential to true self-determination, rights of freedom of association, of assembly, of expression, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and more recently suggestions that minorities and indigenous groups might also have certain additional rights to effective particip- participation in the larger society. Another problem with internal self determination is that there is no agreement on what kind of a government is necessary in order to comply with this right. Um, The General Assembly in 2006 adopted a resolution number 60-164 that talked about the right to democracy and specifically reaffirmed the right to self-determination. But paragraph 3 also observed quite explicitly that there is no single model of democracy or of democratic institutions that would be applicable in every country of the world or that could be said to be required in order to fulfill this idea of internal uh, self-determination. Referring to the UN definition of self-determination, however, it is clear that one can fulfill this right in other ways than simply by gaining independence. Certainly gaining independence was the default option during the period of decolonization. In every non-self-governing territory that had the right to self-determination should have had, and in fact did have, the right to opt for independence. But a number of other options were also set forth forth in UN resolutions. They include the right to decide freely and with knowledge to integrate into the colonial power, uh, as was the choice made by the former colonies of Alaska and Hawaii in the, in the United States, the former colonies of Guadeloupe and Martinique, which became a full, integrated part of France. A second option was that of free association, a formal relationship between the former colonial power uh, and the colony, where the former colony would retain the right unilaterally to become independent at any time it wished but would voluntarily agree to leave certain powers, usually, self de- usually self-defense and foreign affairs, in the hands of the former colonial power. This is the case, for instance, with the small islands of Nui and Tokelau, both of which are in a relationship of free association with New Zealand. And in the 1970 Declaration on Friendly Relations, the UN recognized that any other political status freely determined by a people could also be a means of fulfilling and realizing their right to self-determination. The logical problem is, of course, that it's difficult to speak of self-determination in a situation where necessarily the self, the former colony if you wish, has to negotiate with another government to determine just what integration would look like or whether the other government would accept integration, what the parameters would be of self-determination, or any other status of autonomy, self-government, whatever it might be. Um, However, if the ultimate choice and approval remains in the hands of the entity seeking to exercise its right to self-determination, then we should recognize that such arrangements uh, can be both meaningful and lasting ways of achieving self-determination. And we should keep in mind that self-determination does not necessarily equal independence, that it can also equal any status freely chosen by the people concerned. Just two words about indigenous peoples, because indigenous peoples are the only group, apart from former colonies, that have been formally recognized by the United Nations, although not yet quite in the sense of positive international law, as possessing the right to self-determination. Indigenous peoples began uh, lobbying within the United Nations in the early 1980s uh, and took it as a fundamental goal to express themselves consistently as peoples and as indigenous peoples, they believed that they enjoyed the same right to self-determination as all other peoples, the same right that was set forth in the 1960 and 1970 declarations that I've mentioned. They were ultimately successful and in 19, uh, sorry, 2007, the General Assembly adopted a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples that includes, as Article Three exactly the same language as appears in the Declaration on Independence for Colonial Peoples and that appears as Article 1 of the Two Covenants on Human Rights. The only difference is that instead of referring to all peoples having the right to self-determination, it says that indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. The following article expands this language uh, by declaring that indigenous peoples in exercising their right to self-determination have the right to autonomy or self-government in matters relating to their internal and local affairs, as well as ways and means for financing their autonomous functions. Nonetheless, which may not come as a surprise, just prior to the time when this, the declaration was due to be adopted by the General Assembly, a number of states objected on the same grounds that objections were raised in the 1960s. that saying simply that indigenous peoples have the right to secession may undermine the territorial integrity of states and may indirectly promote secessionist movements and therefore it was not until a new article was was added to the declaration specifically referring to the maintenance of national unity and territorial integrity that the declaration was adopted by the full general assembly thus even though the right to self-determination for indigenous peoples is couched in very broad terms. In fact, the right to self-determination that the General Assembly believes, I believe, that it accorded the indigenous peoples was the right to internal self-determination, not the right to secession. Where does this all leave us? What does self-determination mean today? What does the international law of self-determination mean today? At a minimum, it means the same thing that it meant in 1970. That is, that under international law, as a matter of customary international law, perhaps even as a matter of Jus Kogan's, the few remaining colonies in the traditional sense in the world have the right to external self determination, i.e., independence, whenever they wish to exercise that right. This is also an obligation under positive international law for the more than 170 states that are parties to either the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. That unfortunately is, in my view, the end of what current contemporary international law includes as a right of external self-determination. Despite the wishes of contemporary ethno-nationalists, despite much academic commentary, despite even the statements of some diplomats, positive international law certainly does not recognize any right to secede from an existing state. The insistence of Kosovo and its supporters that it is a unique case, that it is not to be used as a precedent, suggests that even that group of states does not believe that there is a right to secession that exists in contemporary international law and probably suggests that most of them do not believe that there should be. With respect to the right of internal self-determination, this certainly continues as protection for existing states from undue influence from outside, consistent of course with the principle of non-intervention that is at the heart of the United Nations. A broader understanding of this right to internal self-determination, as I've suggested before, is probably better found in existing human rights norms than in trying to infuse into this very vague term self-determination any specific right to autonomy or to self-government or to some other broad description that contains some interesting elements but is probably not very worthwhile if the goal is to articulate a norm of international law that states actually agree to and that they will actually follow. So we haven't come very far in some ways, which is both a disappointment to some, usually those who are not associated with states, and a relief to many, mostly foreign ministries. The continuing confusion that I mentioned at the beginning of this lecture between the narrow international law definition of self-determination and the much broader political appeal of the concept is unlikely to diminish in the near future. Individual and group identities rarely coincide precisely with the boundaries of existing states and demands for greater influence over government decisions that affect them will continue to be made, probably in every country in the world, by groups that consider themselves somewhat different from the dominant group or those who hold power, whether that difference is based on language, culture, history, religion, or mere geographic remoteness. However, given the extraordinary diversity of such situations, and the equal complexity of the solutions that might be found for these tensions and conflicts, there appears appears to be very little international appetite at the moment to extend self-determination as a generalized norm of international law that would be applicable to such internal arrangements or such internal conflicts. It is perhaps unfortunate that the ringing declaration that all peoples have the right to self-determination was not couched in more modest terms that would have reflected its real meaning Instead, it was limited by separate norms that are often forgotten, norms of sovereignty, of political unity, and territorial integrity. But rights are very rarely absolute. And it should not be surprising that self-determination must also accommodate the sometime conflicting rights of states and also of other individuals within states. Yet disputes over territory and power based on a desire for self-determination or self-government, reflect a basic need to control one's destiny that shows no signs of diminishing. While the world may be becoming more globalized, while superstate institutions may be acquiring more and more authority over the daily lives of many people, at the same time we see continuing, if not increasing, tensions from groups within states also seeking a greater share of power. It's unrealistic to expect that the frontiers that cover the globe today will be the same 50 years from now. And a fuller articulation of the relevance of self-determination to a world entirely covered today by sovereign states would no doubt be welcome. If consensus on such norms cannot be achieved, however, and such consensus is certainly distant at the moment. It is difficult to see how any future border changes will occur without violence. And if this is what we have to look forward to, we unfortunately may face the prospect of the 21st century when it comes to conflicts over self-determination looking much more like the 19th century in its approach to international law than it does the 20th century. Neither self-determination nor sovereignty is a trump card that renders all other considerations irrelevant. The exaltation of territorial integrity over all other values will neither ensure peace nor will it prevent future changes in international borders. The advocacy of national self-determination, the idea that every nation deserves a state, is not only geographically impossible, without massive ethnic cleansing at least, but it is also likely to lead to a world of homogeneous and probably intolerant statelets in which the guarantees for minority rights, at best, would be highly problematic. Ultimately, the goal of international law, properly understood, should be to promote the interests both of states and of the people who live within these states. Self-determination and sovereignty should contribute to meeting those legitimate demands, both of states and of the peoples within them, and not stand as an impediment to peaceful and necessary change.